Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be gathered here with you all this morning. Uh, this morning, we are going to take um, another wee little break from our Genesis series, and we're going to be looking at a passage in Ephesians. And unintentionally enough, uh, this is a follow-up, actually, to Len's sermon from last Sunday. Uh, that wasn't intentional, but we're looking at another passage in Ephesians 2, and thematically, it is actually a little bit of a part two, so that works out really well. Uh, but before we get into the text, I just want to give you a taste of where we're going this morning and why we are going there. Uh, last September, I had the opportunity to go and listen to a sermon preached by a woman named Nancy Yang. She's a commissioned pastor now in our denomination. She's at Ladner CRC. Um, she runs the Chinese ministry there, and this was a sermon that she needed to preach, uh, and the first time that she was ever preaching in English, which was quite the feat. And in her sermon, she quoted from Zechariah 13, and the words went like this, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. Now, th this wasn't the main text of her sermon. She simply quoted it. Uh, but for that reason, her, she had a pretty simple application for this text. She said this, in this season, as God did for Israel, God, too, is refining us. Now, when you think about silver and gold... In a molten state, right, the fire is what melts off of the, all of the impurities, right, so that you can get the finest and the purest metal out of it. The finest, purest metal can be created. So in the case of Zechariah, the suffering that Israel was enduring had a constructive purpose, right? The people would learn to call on the name of their God. Through the fire, they would learn to call on the name of their Lord. Now, in a poetic way, see, we're shown there that the fire reestablishes or rebuilds the relationship. They will call. I will answer. I will say. They will say. The refinement is rebuilding the relationship. And ever since then, I've been thinking more and more just about our own situation and our own context and just wondering, I don't think COVID is the problem. You know, I, don't get me wrong, there have been significant hardships because of COVID. I'm not trying to minimize that. But if this went on for another two years, I don't think COVID would be our greatest problem. That would be like saying that the fire that Israel going, was going through was the problem. But we would never say that, of course. The Israelites may moan and complain and get angry, but it's not the fire that's the issue. What the fire does is reveal the problems that are already there. The problems within us, the impurities that need to be addressed. It brings to light what within us yet needs to be refined. A relationship with our God that perhaps needs to be rebuilt. And rebuilding relationship with God naturally leads to also a rebuilding of relationship with others. COVID has brought a lot of sorrow and difficulty when it comes to relationships as Fred actually said in his prayer. Some of us have relationally been broken down, like a, a, a tower of Jenga blocks that just piece by piece just keeps getting pulled out, and eventually we feel like we're just teetering. Relationships have been fractured. We are 
more in conflict with families and friendships than ever before. We don't talk to certain people anymore. We can't imagine why people would think differently than we do. We've been hurt, disillusioned, disappointed. But will we allow ourselves to be rebuilt, to be refined in relationship with both God and others? Should we perhaps be asking ourselves what this p pandemic has done to our own spirits? What it's done to us within us? Have we matured? Or have we only become embittered? Have we drawn closer to God? Or have we been pulled away? Do I actually trust him more or less? Perhaps we need to be reminded of what he's doing. And for that, we're going to look at Ephesians 2. We're going to be going from verses 14 to 22. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It will also be on the screen. Starting at verse 14. I'll just give a couple seconds for those who are looking for it in the Bible. Paul writes this. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How often throughout human history have we seen people divided into two groups? Really, when you think about it. Good and evil. In every story, one gang versus another, one family versus another. Think of West Side Story, the Jets and the whatever the other one is called. Now I'm forgetting it. Shoot. <laughs> you know the story, though. <laughs> There's always seems to be two groups, a division of two groups, and that's what creates the entertainment for us. That's what creates the suspense. But greater than all of these throughout history was the divide between Jews and Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew... You were a Gentile. It was simply that simple. There was Israel and everybody else. It was kind of like when the Greeks took over the Mediterranean world. If you weren't a Greek, you were a barbarian. That's it. You weren't Greek, you were that. Which was similar, or I should say what, what God was then asking of his covenant people to see was now a bridge between two unthinkably different people groups. As if he was saying to, to, his, to the Israelites, hey, you know, I love you guys, and, and you've got some things right, but in my master plan, it's not just about you. It's not just about being Jewish. 
being my people actually means something more. Christ's purpose hasn't always been to unite the most different kinds of people who think the most differently about everything and everything under the sun and to unite this massive group of people into one humanity. It's actually his joy to do that. And what that means is that there is now a foundation for commonality. So no matter how differently we may think about something, our commonality is always greater than what separates us. And think about what that truth would have meant for Jews and Gentiles. They would have had hundreds of things to differ on, okay? Appropriate types of clothing. What they thought about the Roman government, what military leader should be the next Caesar, what kind of instruments are holy for worship, what types of foods and diets should you eat as a Christian, or should you go into as a Christian? What does marriage in the household look like? Is it better to be single or, or married? How do you best care for and talk to non-Christians? What, what if they're a Jewish non-Christian? What if they're a Gentile non-Christian? What, what points of Christian doctrine are more important and, and what are sort of side issues and not very essential? What constitutes a sin and what doesn't? Because you come from a very different background than I do. So what I think is, is a sin might not be what you think is a sin. When do I call you out on something and when do I just let it go in grace? Frankly, there would have been way more for these people to divide on than to find in common. And yet, what's Paul's word to them here in this passage? That their commonality in Christ was greater than all of that because Jesus put to death their hostility and established peace between them. Why? Why was Christ's message one of peace? Because as Paul put it, we now all have access to the Father. That is the greatest gift ever given to us. And it's given to all. We all have access to that. In other words, no matter how right you, may, you think you may be about something, that doesn't change how much you have access to Jesus versus that other person who thinks differently than you. There's no winning or losing when it comes to Jesus. The greatest gift is on offer to all. There's this joke that I recently heard, probably for the third or fourth time. It's a very popular one, very common. And it's a joke about, you know, a story of a man that gets to heaven and, you know, St. Peter's showing him around and he goes through all the different rooms in the household of God and, you know, they pass by this room and that room and, and then St. Peter turns to this man, you know, does this and says, hey, just as we pass this next room, you got to be quiet, okay? So they, you know, sneak past and they get down the hallway and this man asks St. Peter, why did we have to be quiet when we passed that room? And St. Peter goes, oh, well, that's where the Baptists are meeting. They think they're the only ones here. And I'm pretty sure every time I've heard that joke, it's a different group of people in the room. Because nobody wants their own people to be in that room, right? Nobody wants to think that they're the ones who think they're the only ones here, right? I recently heard a, a similar joke, actually, um, about two men that meet on a, a bridge, and they find out that they're both Christian. You know, one was going one way, one was going the other way, and they chat, and they, they're both Christian, and so they talk about different things and different points of doctrine and this and that, and they find all these things in similarity. And then finally, one of them says to the other, oh, just out of curiosity, what denomination are you a part of? And the other goes, oh, I'm a Methodist. And the man yells, heretic, and he pushes him off the bridge. Uh. 
There's a, a priest in New York who once said this, Father Taylor, there is just enough room in the world for all the people in it, but there is no room for the fences which separate them. Dividing over and focusing on our differences seems to be the in thing to do today. But according to Paul, regardless of who we want to hang out with or associate with, if we claim Jesus as Lord, we are all part of the same household. And as members of the same household, there's a reality that we all need to face. We are all being built up together to become a holy temple. We are being built up together to become a holy dwelling in which God dwells by his spirit. Consider then what it's required for us to be built up into this temple. Right? If Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets kind of lay the foundation, we are all stones that are being built up on top which means that we might be layered next to somebody who looks and thinks very differently than we do. Yet, all of us need to be cut and chiseled and refined just as much as anybody else so that we can fit. So that the master builder can place us where we need to be placed. It doesn't mean we're all uniform, not at all. You know, when you look at a stone building from a distance, it all looks the same. But as you get closer, you start realizing, oh no, all these stones are very different. Different, different cuts, different angles, different grooves, different shapes. The mastery is in the builder who has decided which piece should go where and how to make them fit. And as a carpenter or a stone worker, you know, this may have been something that Jesus was actually very familiar with. We all need to be refined, in other words, so that we can create a beautiful mosaic of stones that together make up the dwelling place of God. Refinement rebuilds relationship, both with God and with others. God refines us so that he can build us. And this is a truth that we see noted multiple times in Scripture, that this is what he does. He refines us. Psalm 66, for you, God tested us. You refined us like silver. Isaiah 48, see, I have refined you. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Jeremiah 9, see, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do? Daniel 11, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined. Malachi 3, for he will be like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then 1 Peter 1, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. See, this is what God does. He refines us. And it was the constant pattern of Israel, right? And still it is for us, too, that they would fall into idolatry, need to get refined. Fall into idolatry, need to get refined. As Len said last week, oh, sorry, I should say, which means that our refinement and the refining of our relationships depends, then, not on our own abilities. Because it's he who does it within us. Because the difference now in Christ is that we've already been forgiven, God already looks at us as purified and innocent in the blood of the Lamb. 
we have the Spirit within us, shaping us from within. The refining fire is within us. And the fire of God's presence needs to fill us with a love for him so that that can then flow out into acts of love for others. Because as Len said last week, the greatest witness for Christ was and is Christian acts of love. We cannot do that if we've not first been refined from within, transformed from within by the Holy Spirit of refining fire, of God's refining love working within us. There's a song by Kim Walker Smith called I Say Yes. And at one point in the song, they repeat this phrase over and over and over, you will rebuild, you will restore. God, I believe you are who you say you are. You will rebuild, you will restore. God, I believe you are what you say you are. He is faithful to rebuild us. He's faithful to rebuild what was broken, what was hurt, what was damaged or bruised, what was lost, what what, what crumpled before us, what was torn apart, what was fractured. He will rebuild because we are his church. We are his people. And when we talk about the church, I do mean the people. Not the programs and the services and the meetings. The people are what constitute the church. And God has always been in the business of refining his people. He's always in the business of rebuilding us. To rebuild us first and foremost with him and then with others. And so we need to be constantly reminding ourselves that what unites us in Christ is far greater than what divides us. Doesn't mean we don't occasionally need to have hard conversations. In fact, it should actually mean that we should have more hard conversations because our goal is maturity for ourselves and for others. Our goal is refinement for his sake. Our goal, as Paul puts it later in Ephesians, is to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When you think about that, think of, think of a measuring cup that on the top line it says, the full measure of God. <laughs> that's, that's our standard, right? That's what we want to get, get up to. And we should not settle for anything less than that. We want to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that look like? Again, it doesn't look like uniformity. As if all of us are suddenly perfectly reunited and reconciled. But as long as there are people to follow Christ, there are people to proclaim his peace. And living in peace means working out acts of love, not division. Living in his peace means working out acts of love. It means having hard conversations that we really don't want to. It means talking to people as if we're talking to Jesus. It means submitting to God our weaknesses and our anger and our frustrations and asking him daily to take us through his refining fire so that we can mature and look like him. To be in Christ means to take the narrow road. It means to be honed and to be sharpened, to set aside passive aggressiveness and Canadian politeness, and to be the first to address conflict. To show peace 
by listening well. You know, we exist in a culture and in a society that does not listen well. Can we lead in this area? Rather than follow suit, can we actually lead in how we converse with one another? In how well we listen to one another? Because yes, that is an act of love, to listen well. Can we be a place where people, can we, can we even just in ourselves, not even in this church, but in ourselves, can, can we create spaces? Can we be a place where people can think differently and yet still call one another family? Len said last week that early Christianity killed paganism with kindness. Can we kill hostility and division with kindness? And even if at the end of the day, you know, one way needs to be correct and a decision needs to be decided, which often needs to happen, can we humbly set down our own opinions and our idolatry of being right all the time? Martin Luther King Jr. once told this story in one of his sermons. Some time ago, he said, my brother and I were driving from Atlanta, Georgia to Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was driving in the car, and it was late at night, and for some reason, most of the drivers were discourteous that night. They just didn't dim their lights as they approached our car. I guess back in the day, that's what you were supposed to do when you didn't have the difference between brights and non-brights. You had to dim your lights when another car was going by. Everybody, he says, was forgetting to dim lights that night. And my brother got angry, he said. I know what I'm going to do, he says. The next car that comes along this highway and fails to dim its lights, I'm going to refuse to dim mine. And I'm going to keep these lights on in all of their glaring outpour. And I looked up, King says this, and I looked up and I said, wait a minute, don't you do that. For if you refuse to dim your lights, there will be a little too much light on this highway. And it may end up in destruction for all of us. Somebody will have to have sense enough on this highway to dim their lights. And maybe, King says to his congregation, here we find an analogy to the whole struggle of life. And remember, this man was facing struggles that you and I know very little of. He says, here we find an analogy to the whole struggle of life. Somebody must have sense enough to dim their lights. Because hate begets hate. Toughness begets toughness. And it is all a descending spiral ending in destruction for everyone. The author of Ecclesiastes, in a very familiar passage, mentions that there's a time and a season for everything. There is a time to be angry. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to give up. But there's a time to rebuild. A time to have hard conversations that perhaps we've been waiting too long to have. There are proper avenues for being angry and expressing our anger, but not towards or against one another. We take it to God. And we ask him to transform our, hum our hostility into acts of love. Because you know what? He can. He can do that. Otherwise, we're likely to find ourselves trapped in a 
an ongoing spiritual rut like a youth pastor once described when he said this, I was a Christian for 22 years, but instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I just kept doing the same thing over and over and over. I recently saw this advertisement on the side of a bus, and I don't even know what the advertisement was for, but it stuck in my mind. It said, grow with forever in mind. It was probably for some plant company or something, but I thought, oh, that's a helpful analogy. Grow with forever in mind. Mature and develop with eternity in mind. Let God refine you for the long term. Rather than spiraling in our unhealthy emotions, remember who God is making us to be and be part of the rebuilding process. As King put it, I believe, and just again, imagine a man like King putting it this way, I believe that my spirit can meet your spirit. And your spirit, through this process, will meet my spirit. And through this collision of spirits, the kingdom of God will finally emerge. Does it mean you bend over backwards sometimes to rebuild a relationship? Yeah, it does. You didn't want me to say that, though, did you? You wanted me to say no. Yeah, no. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it means we bend over backwards to rebuild a relationship. Maturity says that I don't always need to be right or to prove that I'm right because God knows. God knows what I'm thinking. God knows what I'm feeling. I don't need the rest of the world to know that. Maturity says that you will do everything in your strength to love those who have hurt you and to keep kindness on those who drive you crazy. Because you think, do you think we don't sometimes drive Jesus insane? I mean, he's perfect, so he probably doesn't go crazy, you know, like, but really, really. And yet how his love just continues to pour out on us. If we, if our goal as Christians is to look like Jesus, that's what we should look like. People who continuously pour out acts of love. Refinement rebuilds relationships, both with God and with others. Is it our hope that we will be refined? Will we see the fire, whatever the fire might be in our life right now, will we see the fire as a helpful thing, a burning that melts away our impurities, not something that scorches us, but a a warmth, that burns off whatever is false, the anger, the impatience, the fear, that reveals what sins within us still need to be refined, maybe things that we're still holding on to that need to be let go of. Can we trust in the fire of God's love that actually sets us free to live into the truth of Jesus and to give us a posture of refined love so that people can say to us what they will and we'll still love them. Tell me that I'm a fool for thinking the way I do. Tell me that I'm a fool for not thinking your way. Tell me that I'm wrong. Tell me that we're wrong. Tell me that we're not Christian enough. Tell me that we're not doing good enough. Be angry with me. Yell at me. Avoid me. 
still going to listen to you. I'll still pray for you. I still want to love you. Why do I want to do that? Because I know, because we know what the love of Jesus Christ has done for us. Can we not imagine then what the love of Christ within us can do for others? Lord Jesus, we ask this morning, Lord, that uh, you would continue to refine us. Each of us, Lord, I know are going through different fires, different things, Lord, that we need to lay at your feet. We ask, Lord, for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit within us to be bold <laughs> and to, to shape us, to hone us, to sharpen us. Lord, we want to look like you. We want to be known as a people from whom acts of love pour out. Help us, Lord. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.